The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Um, We really missed coming to the uh, conference this year. We always love the fellowship. so many people we meet online that that we really look forward to seeing in person at the conference, but we were just way too sick and just couldn't make it. And I appreciate Pastor Kirst giving me the opportunity to share some of what I was going to present at the conference. Um, And even this, I had to windle it down quite a bit. But my topic is the resurrection of the dead, but it's going to be the resurrection of the dead according to Daniel, Jesus, and the Apostle Paul. Looks like... I need to back up here. No. Nope. Doesn't have my outline, but that's all right. Um, we're going to look at Jewish views of the resurrection, and then we're going to break it down as far as the resurrection according to Daniel, Jesus, and the Apostle Paul. First, the resurrection of the dead in Jewish tradition. Um, and then, there's the outline. Okay, I've got to get used to this fading in and out thing. What is the biblical doctrine of the resurrection? Before we get into all of that, um, basically the doctrine of the resurrection is the gospel. That's why I don't just uh, call my view pre- full preterism. I call it gospel eschatology. And we've been blessed to understand the sovereign grace of God, so we've got that part of the gospel, and we've got a proper understanding of the resurrection. And we are just blessed and humbled that God would uh, reveal these truths to us. But the The resurrection is the gospel, and it's presented from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about overcoming the death, and there's plenty of translations that say the death. The day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. The death, because Paul picks up and uses the definite article, the death, in Romans especially. And at the uh, end of Revelation, when the death is no more in the New Jerusalem. But from Genesis to Revelation, it's the gospel. It's how Yeshua, the Messiah, the seed of the woman, is going to come, crush the head of the serpent, but he's going to overcome this death for his people. So it is the gospel. Let's get into the Jewish views of resurrection. Our opponents constantly tell us, well, you guys are automatically wrong because in the first century, a physical resurrection of the physical body was the view. There was no spiritual resurrection view. But that just simply is not the truth. Old Testament scholar Lester Grabe writes, It is sometimes asserted that the resurrection of the physical body was the characteristic or the mainstream Jewish belief. This is not borne out by the data. A variety of beliefs seem to be attested, I'm going to read from up here, about the same time in Israelite history. One of these was the resurrection of the body, but there is little reason to think that it was earlier or more characteristic of Jewish thinking than the immortality of the soul or the resurrection of the spirit. And Murray Harris agrees with this um, critique of the intertestamental pseudepigraphal writings. And there is the concept of the immortality of the soul or spirit that is gained at death or at the end of the age with or without a resurrection of the physical body. So these scholars point out that some Jews believed, and I think this was probably developed before Daniel was written, 
before the concept that there, there was going to be a resurrection at a particular end time. They believed that when the, bo- when the physical body died, the spirit or the soul rose from the physical body, from one mode of existence now to a purely spiritual mode of existence. And it was an individual spiritual resurrection. And we might have this concept now, post-AD 70, is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment, or you know, there's an individual resurrection. But you know, Samuel had a spiritual body. Um, he was conscious. He had an individual spiritual body that was recognizable. Um, so you know, I don't believe that the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 and elsewhere is about this individual spiritual body that we get at death, because I believe we all got that. I don't believe that he's talking about, um, you know, we get an individual spiritual body 2.0 um, in AD 70. I think it's more of a corporate body resurrection, um, but of course there is an individual resurrection involved. The second view of a spiritual resurrection that was predominant in Jewish thinking was this concept that souls or spirits would be raised out of Hades or Abraham's bosom into God's presence when Messiah would finish his work of redemption at the end of the Old Covenant age. Now, these are concepts that full preterists believe. And these issues are debated uh, today between futurists and preterists, and even among preterists, just as they were debated among the Jews. Is it a physical resurrection? Is it a spiritual resurrection? Is it an individual body resurrection? Is it a corporate spiritual body resurrection? Um, So these concepts have always been debated. Now, there is the the concept, and I love this. In my debate with uh, Michael Brown, who is a Jewish Christian apologist, he has a five-volume set where he takes all the Jewish traditions and he tries to harmonize them with the New Testament and say, say, hey, look, look at Yeshua. He's Messiah. Look at your traditions that are in the Talmud. He fits it. I pointed out in our debate, well, Michael, you don't bring up this, tra- this tradition. Not only do you avoid the spiritual resurrection tradition, but what about this tradition that after Messiah was revealed to Israel, after he was cut off, there would be the general resurrection after 40 years? Hmm, that sounds pretty familiar. And, of course, the tradition that between the Old Covenant age and the New Covenant age, there was the second exodus of 40 years, again, within Jewish um, theology, which corresponds with the New Testament. So, concluding these two points, some, some believe the Scriptures taught a spiritual resurrection when souls or spirits would be raised out of Hades or Abraham's bosom at the end of their present age, which was the Old Covenant age. And some believe the resurrection would take place 40 years after the coming of Messiah, and he was cut off. Of course, we believe that, but it's after he was resurrected as well. Therefore, the New Testament totally supports this. Jesus and the New Testament authors placed the resurrection within a generation, that is 40 years after he was cut off, raised, and ascended, and was placing his enemies under his feet. At this historical end, And Jesus identifies this as the end of the Old Covenant age. Um, Souls and spirits of the just and unjust would be raised out of Hades to be judged. All right? Revelation 20 talks about the emptying of Hades of spirits and souls. There's nothing there about physical bodies being raised. And I, I think even Gary DeMar has mentioned in a recent podcast on Revelation 20 
that he believes that all of Revelation has been fulfilled. So, of course, that would necessitate that the resurrection at the end of the millennium there would be spiritual, which would harmonize what he has said about the resurrection of Daniel 12 being spiritual. The resurrection according to Daniel. At that hour, the old Greek Septuagint says hour, and that'll be significant when we get into John chapter 5. At that hour, Michael shall, shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that hour, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard a man clothed in linen who was above the waters and of the river when he held up his right hand and in his left to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times and half times, that is three and a half years, and when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all of these things shall be fulfilled or finished. And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the hour of the end. But you go, go your way till the end, for you shall rest, and you will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Let's make seven brief points, observations, takeaways from this passage. First of all, there's a figure, their figurative language is being used. These people who had died were not literally sleeping in dirt. Their souls or spirits, I believe, were conscious, awaiting the judgment, waiting the resurrection. Um, so they weren't literally asleep in dirt. That's the first observation. The resurrection would take place at the end or hour or time of the end. Notice that there's only one end in our text for the resurrection of the just and the unjust. There's not two. That's significant significant because some preterists, partial preterists, like Kenneth Gentry, are now admitting, yeah, there's a, there was a resurrection that took place in AD 70 and it was spiritual and it was probably a corporate body resurrection. But... Daniel was really talking about two resurrections, one, at the, one in AD 70 and one at the end of world history. But I'm sorry, it just has one end here, and Jesus is very clear. It's at the end of the Old Covenant age. So, you know, it's interesting that Gentry always wants to criticize dispensationalists for having double fulfillment of things, and yet when it comes to the resurrection, his creedal theology uh, forces him to perform eisegesis and read two ends in there when there's just one. Um, I was looking for a good translation that pointed this out, uh, and Don Preston helped me out with this. Thanks, Don, um, if you're out there. The Withcliffe uh, translation emphasizes, in the, in the Greek Septuagint of Daniel, um, kairos or kairos is used. And this is... This word means an appointed time of the end or an ordained time of the end. Last Sunday, Pastor uh, Curtis was quoting, I guess, some guy named Hayes 
where he was talking about, oh, you know, the prophecies of the second coming and the resurrection and the judgment of the dead. Oh, yeah, those those aren't set times. That wasn't a set time. Um, You know, it was conditioned upon how many people would believe or not believe. Baloney. Absolutely baloney. It is a set, ordained time by God that could not be changed at all. Um, And this will help us understand when Paul uses this same Greek word in Romans chapter 8 and in uh, chapter 13, when he's talking about and he's referring back to Daniel, and he uses this same Greek word for the appointed time or appointed end. Uh, Number four, knowledge will increase. What does he mean by this? He's talking about prophetic knowledge of this prophecy will will increase. You'll understand this prophecy when it's about to be fulfilled in the last days, is what he's saying. So when Yeshua comes on the scene, he expands and he tells us more about when and how this resurrection and this judgment of the dead would be fulfilled. And Paul is is a prophet, and he too, in Romans, will tell us how this prophecy would be fulfilled. Number five, the resurrection takes place when the tribulation does. Now, some partial preterists still haven't got this concept wrapped around their heads. The leading ones, Gentry, Damar, James Jordan, they're admitting there was some kind of resurrection in AD 70 because Daniel is told that in verse 7. All of these things will be fulfilled together. Number six, the resurrection takes place during a three and a half year period when the power of the holy people is completely shattered. Now, what is this three and a half years? There is recapitulation between Daniel chapter 9, the 77s or the 70 weeks. Remember, that last seven years is broken in half. The first three and a half years has to do with Christ's earthly ministry and him being cutting off, um, resurrected and ascended. And then we have another three and a half years remaining. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, he equates that last three and a half years with the desolation and the judgment of the city, referring it to the war. All right? So, you can connect Daniel 9's war and the last three and a half years with now Daniel chapter 12 is picking that back up. It's the climax of Daniel's 77s. Daniel himself would be raised, he would be among the dead ones of 1 Corinthians 15. So this isn't just a corporate body resurrection. This isn't just a figurative resurrection. It is a resurrection of individuals, that is, souls or spirits, raised from Hades or Abraham's bosom. And of course, we read that. Now, having looked at Jewish views of the resurrection and harmonized them with the New Testament, and what we believe, what about Orthodox Christianity, right? Um, well, partial, partial preterists claim that they're, you know, they hold to Orthodox preterism, right? Even though they've kind of stolen our view of the resurrection, but we won't talk about that. Um, James Jordan writes this, The resurrection of Daniel 12 seems to connect to the evangelistic and teaching ministry spoken of in verse 3. Thus, it is some kind of historical resurrection that is spoken of, a resurrectional event in this world, in our history. In other words, not the end of world history. Daniel 12, 2 tells us that in the days of Jesus, the nation will undergo a last spiritual resurrection. 
Thus, a resurrection of Israel is in view. Now he's introducing a corporate body resurrection. All right? The death of the church in the Great Tribulation and her resurrection after that event. So we have a corporate body resurrection, and then I love this. This is the best admission I have found on the resurrection. What Daniel has promised is that after his rest in Abraham's bosom, he will stand up, that is, he'll be raised, with all of God's saints and join Michael on a throne in heaven as described in Revelation 20, an event that came after the Great Tribulation and in the year AD 70. So it's a corporate body resurrection, it's a national resurrection, but it's also an individual resurrection of spirits and souls. Kenneth Gentry, he says that we find a passage, find that this passage clearly speaks of the Great Tribulation in 8070, but it also seems to speak of the resurrection occurring at that time. Thank you, it's only taken 30 years for you to say that. Daniel appears to be presenting Israel as a gravesite, that's important because when we get to John chapter 5, under God's curse, Israel as a corporate body, and he equates it to Ezekiel 37, is in the dust. So now Gentry is kind of going that corporate body resurrection line, and I like what he says about gravesite. I like him bringing up Ezekiel 37, because what happens in Ezekiel 37? They come out of their tombs. They come out of their graves. Remember that, John chapter 5, because that is the resurrection of Daniel 12. And he says, the arising of the new Israel from out of the dead of the old covenant Israel. So there's this covenantal resurrection, a corporate body national resurrection. And that is exactly what we hold to, and an individual one of, of souls and spirits out of Hades. So they teach there's an already and not yet to the resurrection. They teach a corporate body resurrection. And they teach a resurrection of spirits and souls out of Hades. That is full preterism, gospel eschatology, resurrection 101. You won't find us in any of the footnotes to these. Why? They don't have any footnotes. The only thing they could footnote, I wish they would have done some research in Jewish views of the resurrection because they could have supported it there. Um, But in Christian thought... Uh, I don't see anyone developing this other than full preterism. But for some reason, they can't seem to footnote us in in their books because that's where this resurrection view came from. Things to look for in approaching the resurrection in the New Testament. Is Is there an evangelistic already not yet period before the spiritual resurrection and the end or the hour of the end? Is there a spiritual and progressive corporate body resurrection in the New Testament? And is there a spiritual resurrection of spirits and souls out of Hades? And that's what we're going to explore. Because if they're admitting this took place in AD 70 according to Daniel 12, and most of the resurrection texts in the New Testament are the resurrection of Daniel 12, the burden of proof is going to be upon them to say, well, these are physical resurrection texts. The burden of proof isn't on us, it's on them. First passage, the resurrection according to Jesus, Matthew 13. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, the good seeds, the sons of the kingdom. 
but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness will be cast, cast in the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth in the, as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus increases the knowledge. Knowledge would increase about this prophecy. And he is affirming what? That there is a progressive already and not yet that takes place. There's evangelism that's going to take place right before the end of the age. And the end of the age he he identifies as his age. The new covenant age hadn't even begun yet. He hadn't died and inaugurated the new covenant. So obviously, he's talking about the resurrection would take place at the end of his age, the disciples' age, which is the Mosaic Old Covenant age. And that is in perfect harmony with what we saw in Daniel chapter 12. Gary DeMar, Gary DeMar writes of Matthew 13. What is world a reference to in Matthew 13 where it says... And the field is the world. The world is most likely a reference to their world, not the whole wide world. It should be noted that Jews were scattered throughout the then known world. That's the Roman world. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth. And he says, see Matthew 16. It's the same. The angels are involved. And take out the wicked from among the righteous. And will cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing teeth. He says this. This happened during the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, notice Gary's not getting into the resurrection. What does it mean that the righteous are going to shine forth as the sun? That's the glorification of the church. He doesn't address that, but that's okay because he and James Jordan will at least address it in our next text. But let's develop it and what other people have said about it first. In Matthew 24, 30 and 31, at Christ's second coming, he says, He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. John Murray correctly writes, There's ample allusion to the sound of the trumpet and to the ministry of angels elsewhere in the New Testament in connection with Christ's advent. So he's clearly connecting the gathering of the elect and the coming of Christ with the resurrection and second coming in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. We applaud him. We agree with this orthodox position. The analogy of faith is so strong, it's so hard to... I mean, you have to be blind kind of not to see it. Hence, verse 31 can most readily be taken to refer to the gathering of the elect at the resurrection. And we agree. Even G.K. Beale, who is not a preterist, um, he's now become a partial preterist, but he says in his commentary on First and Second Thessalonians that both First Thessalonians 4 and chapter 5 explain the same events in Matthew 24 is discernible from observing that both passages actually form one continuous depiction of the same narrative in Matthew 24. I encourage you, open your Bible and get a pen and paper and, and write down all the parallels between Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and you'll see pretty much identically in the same order. There's, I've only found two exceptions, but it's the same. It's, it's like Paul's reading the Olivet Discourse. 
Um, it's clearly the same event. Though Matthew does not explicitly mention the idea of resurrection, he implies it in the phrase, gather his elect, in Matthew 24, 31. The gathering of all believers, both living and dead. I would agree with that. Um, and resurrection is implied because what happened to Israel when she was scattered from the land? She died, spiritually, corporately, covenantally. When she was gathered back in the land, Ezekiel 37, the gathering is described what? As a resurrection. So this whole, the language of gathering is, is a resurrection language. Um, but in another work, Beale claims now that the coming of Christ in Matthew 24, 30, it was fulfilled in AD 70. It was an invisible coming through the, through the Roman armies. He, now he realizes that he's been caught in a contradiction. And so what he says is, uh, this creates a thorny problem for the church and for himself that needs more study, right? Let's kick the can down the road and let someone else deal with my contradiction because I've just got done saying that the coming of Christ in Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 4 is the second coming and resurrection, but now I'm admitting that one of them was in AD 70. That would necessitate that both of them are. But we've done the more study and we've solved that thorny problem. But now look, this is a great admission from James Jordan. I've been waiting for this admission for 30 years and it finally came. Now remember, partial predators taught that the gathering of the elect here was some post-AD 70 evangelism and the angels were men and we're preaching the gospel post-AD 70 and people are being gathered, being resurrected, regenerated through the gospel. That's how they used to interpret this. We used to say, no, this is... This is the second coming and the resurrection at the end of the age. All right? It's a consummation. Well, finally, James Jordan has come to realize this. And we, I think we have some divine counsel stuff in here, too. Well, you tell me what you think. They are gathered from the four winds, not from the four corners of the earth. They are gathered from the ends of heaven, not from the ends of the earth. This language might be taken as a general reference to the whole earthly world, except for the fact that it fits so very well with what we find again in Revelation. The dead saints under the altar are in paradise or Abraham's bosom, a location symbolically equivalent to the firmament heavens that are right below the throne heavens. It is these elect and their newly massacred brethren who come out of the great tribulation who are gathered before the throne in Revelation 15. Immediately after the great affliction, the great persecution and martyrdom of the apostolic church, the world will be changed from the old to new creation. No longer, now divine counsel stuff I think, I don't know, tell me. No longer will angelic stars and heavenly powers govern humanity. For in Jesus, mankind has at last come of age. No longer will angels rule the world. They will vacate their heavenly thrones. The Jews will mourn over Jerusalem and they will realize that the church, which they had hoped to destroy, has now ascended to the Ancient of Days and has been given the kingdom promised in Daniel 7. Those saints have been gathered by the angels in connection with the seventh and last trumpet described in the book of Revelation. Their souls gathered from all the heavenly places in paradise where they had been waiting for this day. The saints are gathered before the throne 
in the highest heavens and shortly will sit down on thrones with their Lord, the ma- their master. They will be the new stars, the new moon, and will sit there where angels formerly sat in heaven. Wow, that's just, that's an awesome admission right there. Um, but how can you have the angels judged in AD 70 without Satan being judged? See, there's a lot of things that need to be filled in here by Jordan that just aren't. And he makes some statements like the church has ascended to heaven, where I would say that's 1 Thessalonians 4. Not physic- physically, but uh, you know, figuratively and spiritually. Uh, James Jordan and Gary DeMar's new position on Matthew is that the church replaced angels in ruling the world in AD 70 and that they were raised out of Abraham's bosom. Well, this begs the question, how many times are the dead raised? If Daniel's and, and uh, you know, the Old Testament saints were raised out of Hades in Abraham's bosom, are in God's presence, they've inherited eternal life, why do they need another resurrection? Especially since Scripture only gives one resurrection at one end, the end of the Old Covenant Age. So, like I said, we solve Beale's thorny problem by just uniting the church's division on eschatology. We agree with the analogy of faith. We agree with all millennialists that teach that the coming of Christ and the gathering of the elect in Matthew 24 is the resurrection of Daniel 12, Matthew 13, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. We also agree with our partial preterist brethren, but the coming of Christ and the resurrection in Daniel 12, Matthew 24 was spiritually fulfilled in AD 70. If we combine those two orthodox views, we come up with a more orthodox or straight or consistent position, and that is all of these texts are referring to one resurrection event, and it was spiritually fulfilled in AD 70. Let's get into uh, another passage where Jesus discusses the resurrection, John chapter 5. This is a chart taken, taken from uh, G.K. Beale. He talks about, now remember, Jesus would increase the knowledge of how the resurrection of Daniel 12 would be fulfilled. Now, immortal body at death people and, and so forth have a hard time with the already and not yet, and I understand that. But Jesus is clearly giving this resurrection our the hour of the end. He's, he's going off the old Greek Septuagint here, and he's giving it an already and not yet. He who hears, the, hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. There's your already. And does not come into judgment, but has passed, eros, past tense, out of death into life. An hour is coming, and now is. That's the already. And those who hear will live. They're getting eternal life. They hadn't had it completely, and they'll get it fully at his coming, but that's the already. And then you have the not yet. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Now, the all is what? It's a resurrection of the just and the unjust. It's not just a spiritual resurrection of hearing the gospel for the just. It's going to be a resurrection at the end of the old covenant age for everybody resurrection unto eternal life or resurrection of judgment. If all agree that the phrase is death to life, the dead, hearing, the voice, and live in John 5, 24 and 25 is referring to a spiritual resurrection for the soul, 
Where does Jesus tell us that the terms hear, voice, resurrection to life is somehow now physical voices, physical hearing, and a physical resurrection? Um, it seems to be they see that word graves, and that's it. I mean, for them, that proves without a shadow of a doubt that this somehow has to be a physical resurrection at the end of world history. And since a physical resurrection didn't happen in AD 70, for the just and the unjust, then obviously this is off in the future. Um, but remember what Kenneth Gentry said. He said that the resurrection of Daniel 12 is de- depicting Israel in a grave site. And he said Ezekiel 37 is a good, a good illustration of that. But in Ezekiel 37, he says they're coming out of their graves. And that was a spiritual resurrection. And that was a figurative resurrection. So how can you insist now and go to graves as your you know, definitive proof that this is somehow a resurrection at the end of time? It's just a horrible, horrible, um, horrible logic being used there. Now, Kenneth Gentry interprets Jesus' The Coming Hour of John 4, 21 and 23 to be AD 70. And the now is of John 4, 23 and John 5, 25 as a already present reality. All right? So how does the coming hour in the next chapter in John 5, 25 and 28 get changed to the end of time? If the coming hour in John 4 is AD 70... I mean, the burden of proof is you is upon you to prove in chapter 5 that that's talking about the end of world history. Not only that, but there's a chiasm. And John wants you to connect the coming hour and now is of John 4 with John 5. So if he wants that connection there to be one unit, who are we to break it apart? The hour is coming, and that's the eschatological, not yet, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. The Samaritan woman wants to know, you know, you're the Messiah, so answer some of my theological questions. Are we supposed to be worshiping over here and at this temple or in Jerusalem? He says, look, sacred space in the coming hour in AD 70 is going to be gone. My believers are going to be sacred space, and out of from you are going to flow the living waters. That is, you're going to be the temple of Ezekiel 47. So it's not going to be a physical temple. But the hour that is coming is referring to 8070, and Kenneth Gentry and Partial Predators admit that. Now, the hour is coming and now is. The now is is referring to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But look at the next one, the second B. John, Jesus in John 5 is picking up where John 4 left off. There is coming an hour that now is. So, The coming hour is referring to AD 70 in both chapters. The burden of proof is upon a futurist to tell us why chapter 5 is referring to a different time. John tells us elsewhere about this hour. You know, in hermeneutics, you know, you, you go the same author, then you go to the same author in another letter or epistle he's written. And so we go to the book of Revelation and even 1 John 2, 17, 18, my little children is the last hour. But here in Revelation 14, 7, he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. What hour is that? The old Greek Septuagint of Daniel 12, the hour of the end, the hour of John 
5, the judgment and resurrection of the dead. Now, this is the judgment upon Babylon. And in Revelation chapter 11, Old Covenant Jerusalem is described as Sodom and Egypt. In chapter 14, it's Babylon, but it's the same entity. When the judgment of the city takes place, it's for three and a half years in Revelation. Didn't we hear about that three and a half years in Daniel 12, verse 7? Yes, we did. And when the city is trodden down by the Gentile nations, the Romans, in verse 15 is when the dead are judged. Again, how many times does the dead get judged and raised from the dead? Just one during that three and a half year period. And our last one uh, of Jesus' resurrection views, there are other passages I just didn't have time, but these are the main ones. Jesus says concerning the dead, I am the spiritual resurrection and the spiritual life. The one who believes in me will live, that is be spiritually raised from Hades or Abraham's bosom, even though they die, and then to the living. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That is, they're going to inherit spiritual eternal life. It's crazy that people like Ed Stevens believes that never die means that they're just going to be raptured. As we go on, that'll be clearly wrong. But let me give you some arguments here that, um, that the resurrection here is spiritual. Whenever Jesus uses the phrase, I am, and then you can fill in the blank, whether it's bread, light, door, good shepherd, way, truth, or life, in every instance, it's always spiritual. Jesus isn't a physical, isn't physical bread, physical light, phys- a physical door, so forth. So why would his statement in uh, John 11 be any different? I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus came to overcome the spiritual sin and death, the sin and the death, that came through Adam, that held the dead and the living captive and separated from God's presence. He came to raise them from spiritual death, so he is the spiritual resurrection and life. Argument number two, I am the life. All references to life in John's gospel up to this point and even beyond are referring to spiritual life. So this is not a resurrection of physical corpses at the end of world history. There's nothing in this passage that would warrant that and everything that would contradict it. Argument number three, believers never die. All references to never die or equivalents never thirst or never hunger in John refer to an internal spiritual fulfillment of eternal life. So to say that never die means some kind of physical fulfillment where bodies are flying up in the sky, but never thirst and uh, never hunger is spiritual. You can't do that. I mean, it's, unless you're going to say these people flew up in the, in the sky, they're in heaven in physical, spiritual bodies or whatever, and they're, they're physically eating food and they're, and they're physically drinking, and so that way they're never dying. You have to be consistent with these terms is what I'm saying, and we consistently apply them as spiritual because that's the way John is using them. Uh, argument number four, use of miracles. Mark chapter two. So that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, a, a spiritual, internal, unseen miracle, the greatest miracle of all, pick up your mat and walk and go home. All right? Jesus is constantly doing physical miracles to make a spiritual point. 
he feeds 5,000, really 20,000 when you include uh, children and, and women. Uh, he says, after feeding them, he says, I am, there's your I am statement, the bread of life. Um, pointing to the necessity of believing in him to have eternal life, which here is described again as never hunger. So, Jesus is going to heal Lazarus, right, in John chapter 11, being consistent with all of his other miracles to point to a spiritual truth. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the spiritual resurrection and the life. I can do the greater resurrection. You know, raising someone physically and then them dying later is not the greatest miracle. That's not the overcoming of the death that Jesus came to do. He never came to do away with biological death. He came to do away with the death that came through Adam. John chapter 9 and 10, again, another clear example where a physical healing takes place that is connected to an I am statement to produce spiritual uh, fulfillment. He heals the blind man, and and that creates three additional I am statements. I am the light, the door, and the shepherd. The point of the miracle is to, and the I am statement is to prove he alone can heal spiritual blindness, which is again another way of teaching he is the source of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. Concluding Jesus' teaching on the resurrection. Jesus increased knowledge of the resurrection of Daniel 12, teaching that there was, it would take place at the end of their old covenant age. There was an already and not yet to this resurrection and it would be fulfilled within his generation. Very consistent with what we've seen in Daniel 12. It would be a spiritual event for the dead and the living to experience. Now, let's get into our last point here, the resurrection according to Paul. In Acts, Paul says to his accusers, he he just came to... His doctrine of the resurrection was you couldn't find him... You couldn't accuse him of saying, I've come up with something new. He he says he teaches no other things except that which can be found in the law and the prophets. Well, there's a problem here because Jesus says he came to fulfill all that is written and what was written at that time, not the New Testament, right? The Old Testament. He was going to fulfill all the Old Testament. And wouldn't Daniel 12, Hosea 13, Isaiah 25, 26 be in the Old Testament? Yes, and we just saw in the, in the Olive Discourse that he was going to raise the dead in his generation. Um, this is key. Paul says that his doctrine of the resurrection was the hope of the 12 tribes of Israel. All right? Jesus cursed Israel. Jesus taught the disciples to curse Israel. He cursed the fig tree. Then he taught the disciples to cast the mountain into the sea. He's not talking about literal mountains. He's not talking about your problems with cancer. He's talking about Israel, apostate Israel. In the Old Testament, Israel was God's holy mountain. All right? But now, because she has rejected her Messiah, she's an apostate mountain. She is a destroying mountain, like Babylon was described in Isaiah. And so now, they pray in precatory prayers, just like Jesus cursed the fig tree, During that transition period, they're praying that God would remove that kingdom because they're killing his saints. And in Revelation 8, what do we see? A mountain is uprooted and thrown into the sea. Answer to their prayers. This is key. There are no 12 tribes today. So the resurrection of Paul in uh, Acts 24, 15 
we can't pull, we can't put it beyond AD 70 because there are no 12 tribes today. There is no flesh, there is no covenantal Israel today. He says in Acts 24:15, there is about to be a rising again of the dead, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. There are plenty of especially literal translations that translate mellow here as about to be fulfilled. And you even have, uh, uh, was it Blass and Bruner? He says mellow, when it's used in the infinitive, always expresses imminence. Concluding arguments on Acts 24.15. This passage is the resurrection of Daniel 12, and no one debates that. And therefore, it was to be fulfilled within a three-and-a-half-year period, when the war took place, when the power of the holy people would be completely shattered. Jesus taught all the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, would be fulfilled. And there are no 12 tribes of Israel today. When God came through the Roman armies, what did they do? They burned the temple. What was in the temple? The genealogies. No one can say that they're from such and such tribe today. All right? Uh, no one can claim to be a racial Jew based upon, you know, because you'd have to prove what tribe you're from. So that automatically puts the resurrection of Daniel 12 and the resurrection of uh, Acts 24:15 in AD 70. It cannot be fulfilled beyond AD 70. The burden of proof is upon the partial predators to prove that, Dan- that Acts 24:15 is a future resurrection, and they just can't do it. Philippians 3, this is something that Pastor Curtis touched on last week. I'm going to try and piggyback off of that a little bit in uh, Romans chapter 4. It says, I count my life and status in the old covenant body of Judaism as crap, (laughs) as dumb, uh, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. See, that old covenant world produced self-righteousness, and he considered that as crap a vile body that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained this. Well, Paul, if it's a biological resurrection, I mean... That statement doesn't make any sense. But if it's a spiritual resurrection, and it's that already and not yet resurrection over the death, the spiritual death, then it totally makes sense that he has attained it to some degree. Or I'm already perfect. Well, duh, Paul. You know, if it's a physical resurrection, we know you're not perfect. We wait for the at hand, Philippians 4, 5, verses right after this, the 82nd coming of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our vile body to be like his glorious body. Paul had attained to some degree of Christ's righteousness, perfection, and resurrection. So there is an already and not yet resurrection taking place, and it would be consummated at Christ's at-hand second coming. The Philippians 3 and 4 is just so clear. And that, well, let's go back there. Um, because I do take this as a corporate body passage, um, and I, I connect the, the life in the Old Covenant, self-righteousness, crap, <laughs> with a vile body. I think all of those are connected. And that, that body, that Old Covenant body that could only produce 
self-righteousness was going to be conformed and transformed into the body of Christ, that is the church, his glorious new covenant body. For Paul, eschatological resurrection is inseparably tied to justification and attaining Christ's righteousness. And Pastor Curtis touched on this in Philippians chapter 3 last week. So to dovetail and piggyback on that, look at Romans 4.24 and these different literal translations. But also, on account of us to whom it, in context, righteousness, to whom it, righteousness, is about to be credited. Well, I know that doesn't fit a lot of Reformed theology, but, you know, N.T. Wright is saying, well, now justification doesn't come until the second coming. Reformers are saying, oh, no, we're fully righteous. We've been imputed. That righteousness is fully imputed to us when we believe. Well, this if you want to solve that debate, become a full preterist. Because we are fully righteous. We are fully justified. And Pastor Curtis will uh, touch on that probably on sanctification next week, and I look forward to that. Romans chapter 5 through chapter 13. The Futurist usually sees this section of Romans as having to do with biological death coming through Adam and Paul's terms such as body of sin, body of death, mortal body, body of flesh, the redemption of the body, is having something to do with Christ changing the physical body when he comes someday. But Paul totally denies this, both on the timing and the nature of resurrection in Romans 5 through 13. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, We shall be saved, that is in the future, this is the eschatological, not yet, by his life. And I would agree with cross-references and commentators who connect Colossians 3, 4 with this, which says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, Christ comes, that's when his life, eternal life, is going to be given. But look, in the same chapter, when's he going to come? Again, mellow is used. Smith's literal translation renders this passage, Adam, who was a type of the one who is about to come. Per Paul in Romans chapter 4 and 5, Christ was about to come and finish the process of giving eternal life and righteousness to the church. Moving on. In chapter 5, it is clear that Paul is not developing the death that came through Adam as biological death. It's clearly spiritual death. And when you compare what Christ is fixing on the one column with what Adam brought in, it's clearly um, spiritual death. Look at that. Death, is it physical or spiritual, that reigned and is still reigning, apparently, through the one man, Adam. And thus sin is reigning, what, through physical death or spiritual death? Well, if Christ is undoing that, bringing life, and life is reigning now, well, he's supposed to be undoing whatever the death was. So if the death was physical, but his life is now reigning through eternal life, we shouldn't be dying physically. But if it's spiritual death that he's talking about that's reigning, and Christ is reversing that, then he's faithful. <laughs> you don't have a problem. Paul's not, not yet resurrection in Romans chapter 6. For if we have been united, planted with him in a death like his, 
we will, in the future, the near future, certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Well, our future, well, he was raised a physical body, and so we're going to have a physical body like him. Well, did they die physically just like him? No. This is the same likeness here. It's a spiritual resurrection. It's an identification in Christ. When Christ was raised out from the dead ones, Paul is saying you are there right with him. You are raised out from the dead ones as well. All right? And when he was raised, you are raised and you are being raised. For in that he, Christ, died to the sin. What sin? The sin of Adam. He died once. And in that he liveth. He lives to God. And I love this translation. Puts this in brackets. In unbroken fellowship with the Father. That's the point of resurrection. The point of resurrection is having Christ's righteousness, having eternal life, and having unbroken fellowship with God. That is the resurrection. And so, in chapter 6, verse 8, and if we died with Christ, because Christ died to the sin of Adam, we believe that we shall, that is in the near future, live with him. Again, the point is living with him. He goes to prepare a place. He and the Father come and he make, they make their dwelling within us and they sup with us. That is resurrection. Paul's terminology in Romans chapter 6. Tom Holland, who is not a preterist, and I was going through some of your stuff on Romans because uh, I drive a truck, and I just love Pastor Curtis's stuff. Look, if you feel called to the ministry and seminary is just too expensive, and it's a lot of time, and you can't do it, and you don't want a bad theological education on top of it, just go through Pastor Curtis's messages on all of the book of Romans, especially 5 through 13, and you will be set. Take a hermeneutics class, take an attributes of God's class, go through Romans with Pastor Curtis, and I think you'll be set. That's a free one for someone out there. But Tom Holland, who's not a preterist, he says this, of the body of sin, the body of death, the body of flesh, Within the context of Romans, and then comparing them with similar statements by Paul in Ephesians and Colossians, such as the new man and the old man, he says all these expressions are obviously not intended of the physical body, but yet that's the mainstream view. They, they, they say, well, yeah, spiritual stuff, you know, but, you know, still referring to this, you know, it's, it's going to change this. He says, but it's a sinful mode of existence, and he says, and establishes a corporate meaning. For the term, the body of sin, and ends up agreeing with others such as T.W. Mason, Manson, where he says it is perhaps better to regard the corporate body of sin as the opposite of the corporate body of Christ. These are corporate body terms. They're not talking about individual, your body and changing the flesh. Now there was between eighty thirty to eighty seventy. You, re, you had two bodies. You had the body of Christ and you had the body of Adam. But within the body of Adam, you had two bodies. You had the Mosaic body. They were baptized in Moses. So you were either in Adam. All of them were in Adam. Even believers in the transition period, they were still in that body seeking deliverance from it. But you had a body within a body. Now, if you were a Jew... If you were a Christian Jew, see that transition period, 8030 to 8070, you were in three bodies. <laughs> All right? And you were groaning to get out of that Adamic body and that mortal 
uh, old covenant Jewish body that could only produce self-righteousness, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. Now, during the transition period, the new covenant body of Christ is being raised out from the body of Adam and the body of Moses. And in AD 70, they will be completely separated. And that's what you see. The new Jerusalem comes down in Revelation. The gates are open. That's the new covenant body. And outside in darkness, there's your Adamic body still. And they need to come in to the body of Christ. They're not overlapping at that point. Romans chapter 7. When the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Again, spiritual death is everywhere. Physical death is now nowhere in Romans 5 uh, through 8. It's all spiritual death. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? That is the Adamic mosaic body. Paul is portraying himself as either being in the flesh under Torah before his conversion, or I would probably agree with Pastor Curtis on this the more I looked at it. Uh, he's personifying himself as Adam and being under law in the corporate body of the law of Moses which only served to magnify the sin and show that you were spiritually dead and you needed Christ. Romans chapter 8. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, or the appointed time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory about to be revealed in us. For the earnest looking out for the creation doth expect the revelation of the sons of God. For to vanity was the creation made subject, not of its will, but because of him who did subject it in hope that also the creation itself shall be set free from the servitude of the corruption to the liberty of the glory of the children of God. For we have known that all the creation doth groan together and doth travail in pain together till now. And not only so, but also we ourselves, having the fruits of the Spirit, we also ourselves, in ourselves, do groan, adoption expecting. (laughs) This must be Young's literal. The redemption, that is the resurrection of our body. Body is singular there. It's the corporate body. Well, what time is it? Again, he uses kairos. It's the appointed time, the appointed time of Daniel 12, 4. Meyer's New Testament commentary, talking about the appointed time here, kairos, he says, which was to end with the approaching parousia, assumed, no, it wasn't assumed, as near... um, and in the entire New Testament, and was thus the appointed time of crisis. And that's what Kairos means. It's uh, an appointed time when things come to a head, a crisis or consummation. And Jesus uses Kairos as well in the Olivet Discourse. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the Kairos, or the appointed time of redemption, is at hand. Do not go after them. Well, why, Jesus? Why aren't we supposed to go out after them? Well, because the gospel has to be preached to all the nations first and to every creature, Ketisis. This is the same creation that's groaning in Romans chapter 8. Since the sign of the gospel had been preached to every nation, to the world, to every creature under heaven throughout the Roman world, Paul affirmed the appointed time of crisis of fulfillment described as the glorification of the church the liberation of creation and redemption of the body was about to be fulfilled in A.D. 70. The 
contextually, what is the glory that is about to be revealed? Well, the verse right before it tells us. Um, in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the glorification or the resurrection of the church. This is what Paul taught earlier in Romans 6. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall be united with him in a resurrection like him, like his. It's a spiritual resurrection. It's a spiritual glory that would be revealed within the saint. The resurrection of Christ here results in unbroken fellowship, and we've discussed that. It's a living with God. Where is this glory to be revealed? It says, in us. It also talks in verse 24 of an unseen hope. Well, Paul brings both of these concepts together in Colossians 1.27. To whom God has willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This glory isn't something you can see with your physical eyes because it's his presence indwelling us. And isn't that what Jesus said about the kingdom? He says, when the kingdom comes, you're not going to be able to say, see here, see there, for the kingdom of God is within you. When would this eschatological waiting for the glory be revealed? It was about to be revealed. Um, Paul here uses the Greek word mellow in the aorist infinitive. Kenneth Gentry writes of John's use of mellow in the aorist infinitive. In Revelation 1.19, this term means to be on the point of, to be about to. According to Young's literal translation of the Bible, Revelation 1.19 reads, Write these things that thou hast seen, the things that are, and the things which are about to come after these things. The leading interlinear versions of the New Testament concur. Look at this. This is surely, Gentry is positive. This is surely the proper translation of the verse. When used with the aorist infinitive, as in Revelation 1.19, the word's predominant usage and preferred meaning is to be on the point of, to be about to. And he goes to the literal translations, and he's like Young's literal, and he says, that's what we got to follow. Well, Gentry's got a real problem here because in Romans 8, 18, Young's literal says that the glory was about to be revealed. So that means the, the redemption of creation, the redemption of the body, the liberation of creation was all going to be fulfilled, and that doesn't fit the creeds. So what did Ken Gentry do? In his latest version of uh, When Jerusalem Fell, is that, is that it? Um, he now says, I, I was wrong about mellow. Uh, it, it, can just, it just means will. It'll, it'll happen sometime in the future. That is a serious, serious issue. All right? He saw this resurrection train coming on Mellow, and he had to get off the tracks. And so he's totally abandoned what he has said about Young's literal, about when Mellow is used in the infinitive, because he sees the problem on the resurrection and his creeds. Gary DeMar says this, a very brief on this key eschatological passage, he says in his last day's madness, whatever the glory is, Paul's talking about, it was about to be revealed. Now, Gary's holding strong on Mello. He's not going to compromise like Gentry did. But he kind of acts like he doesn't understand what this glory is. But in context, it's clearly the glorification of the church. It's clearly when liberation, when the creation is liberated, the sons of God are revealed, and when the redemption of the body is fulfilled. Now, this is a key creedal text, so you might want to be vague on it, 
But I don't think we need to be vague on it. And I'll get into uh, John Lightfoot here in a second. But there's another uh, time text here in Romans 8. They were to await with eager longing. And this Greek word means to eagerly wait on your tiptoes with an outstretched neck, with your head up. Well, what did Jesus say in the Olivet Discourse? Not only does he use kairos, the appointed time, but he says, after all nations and the creation of men had heard the gospel, Christ exhorts them to straighten up and to raise your heads for your redemption draws nigh. Redemption of the body, this lifting up the heads, this eager expectation to be fulfilled in their generation. It was about to be fulfilled. There's just way too many connections here to deny that Romans chapter 8 and the liberation of creation and the redemption of the body was fulfilled in 8070. What is the creation? John Lightfoot on creation. Now, people are going to say, oh, that's an unorthodox view you've, you've come up with. Well, John Lightfoot helped put together the Westminster, Westminster Confession of Faith, which most of these guys just like worship, right? So let's at least hear what he has to say about this. He says, Lightfoot identifies the creation as with the gospel being preached to the creation. So he says that this is a creation of men. It's not the physical creation that's groaning and that's going to be liberated, and that's great. He points out that the Jews understood understood the term to be applied to the Gentiles, which is interesting, Um, the creation of men, not the planet, and that the Old Testament prophets predicted the gathering together and adoption of sons to himself among the Gentiles. What does vanity, bondage, and corruption mean? Is this referring to the decaying of our physical bodies? No. He goes to other passages where these Greek words are used, and he concludes this is referring to the inner sin of man's heart and mind. That is the futility that they have. Without the gospel, without Christ, there's this inner decay, putrefaction, um, futility that man goes, goes through. He's groaning under internal sin. He says, this vanity or futility is improperly applied to the physical creation. For vanity doth not so much denote the vanishing condition of the outward state of the physical planet as it doth the inward vanity of the emptiness of the mind. The Gentile world shall in time be delivered from the bondage of their sinful corruption, that is, the bondage of their lusts and vile affections, under which he hath lain for so long a time into a noble liberty such as the sons of God enjoy. If it be inquired how the Gentile world groan and travailed in pain, let them who expound this of the fabric of the material world tell us how they groan, how the world groans and travails. They must needs own it to be borrowed a elusive phrase. In other words, it's ridiculous to make this text about the physical creation. Rocks and trees aren't groaning to for the trees to grow higher and the rocks to be softer and or whatever. It's clearly the creation of men that are that's groaning here. Uh, what is the groaning and what is the set free and the redemption? Do these terms sound familiar? Groaning, to be set free, redemption. Well, according to N.T. Wright and our resident blue-collar scholar, Bob Jr. Hey, Bob, how are you doing out there? These are allusions to the second or new exodus motif. The first exodus and redemption was a theological groaning, oh, I'm sorry, a typological groaning under physical bondage and slavery of Egypt. 
Whereas the second messianic exodus was a redemption from the slavery of the sin, the death, and the law, or in this context, (laughs) inward vanity, bondage, or corruption. That is what they're groaning under. Sin, the sin of Adam. And you can make these parallels, all right? Israel is is described as God's children and sons. Uh, Under the New Covenant, New Covenant believers are God's children and sons. Under the Old Exodus, uh, Israel was made a creation uh, through the Exodus Exodus event. And the new creation, we are a new creation in Christ. And that creation is the focus, not the physical creation. God led Israel in the wilderness. And here in Romans chapter 8, he was leading the church through the Spirit. Israel was groaning and wanted to be set free from re- and redeemed from slavery and bondage. And now under the new covenant or the transition period, the creation of the church was groaning to be set free and redeemed from endemic vanity, bondage, and corruption. What is the body? Most literal translations bring out singular body, and that is correct. This is the corporate body of the church. Lightfoot correctly understands this to be the corporate body of the Jew-Gentile church, equating it with Ephesians 4.13. And of the same body of Ephesians 4.13, the body of Christ, the church, corporate body, is the meaning of that obscure and much mistaken place. That's our passage. And not only they, the whole creation or every creature, which means no other thing than the Gentile or heathen world, not only they groan, to come into evangelical liberty of the children of God, but we also, that's the Jews, of the Jewish nation who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown within ourselves, waiting for the redemption to what the adoption of our body, that is the corporate body. We wait for the redeeming and adopting of the Gentiles to make up our corporate mystical body, that is the church. So what do we do when we combine John Lightfoot admission and Gary DeMar. Well, we have the corporate body of the church was going to be spiritually redeemed, and it has nothing to do with the physical planet. It's the creation of men, something that's taking place internally. And that was fulfilled in AD 70. Uh, Romans 13. And this knowing, here we go again, Kairos. It is the appointed time of Daniel 12, 4. Um, is for us to awaken out of sleep. Well, where have we heard that? We heard that in Daniel chapter 12 too. For now our salvation is nearer than at which time we believed. The night time is nearly over and the day comes close near. Paul is definitely alluding back to Daniel chapter 12. Knowledge is increasing of Daniel. And Paul as a prophet is telling you that not only are the dead ones going to be awakened from their sleep, but also the living. They're going to arise. How are they going to arise? They're going to be delivered from the death that came through Adam, the spiritual death. They're going to receive eternal life. Um, Then you have all kinds of parallels. I'm going to go through these real quickly between the Olivet Discourse and Romans chapter 8, which is not only is Paul getting his eschatology from Daniel 12, but he's also getting it from Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. I'm just... I'm going through these. You can pause it and and look these over if you want, just for time constraints. 
I'm going to go through these. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15. Obviously don't have time to do a whole thing on 1 Corinthians 15. Time is is uh, coming short here. Um, so just some times that, yeah, my time is at hand. Just some, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, for partial preterists, it seems like Revelation 20 and 1 Corinthians 15 are like just the last things to go, you know. And... Um, but we have to realize that Revelation 20 and 1 Corinthians 15, they're not islands unto themselves. All right? If you let Scripture interpret Scripture, it's, 1 Corinthians 15 is a no-brainer, really, especially when you understand what the resurrection of the dead deniers were denying and what's going on in Romans 5 through 8. It's really quite easy. And I'll come back another time and do just an exegesis of 1 Corinthians 15, maybe the next time I come. But um, here's some basic takeaways. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection of Daniel 12. It's the same resurrection event as Matthew 24. It is the same resurrection event that Paul is teaching in Romans 8 and chapter 13. Uh, Daniel 12, okay. Daniel 12, they rise to eternal life. In 1 Corinthians 15, they are raised to immortality. Daniel 12, the resurrection is at the time of the end, just one end. Remember, Paul preached no other things except that which can be found in the Law and the Prophets. So if Paul is saying the resurrection is at the end, he's talking about the same end of Daniel. And we just got done seeing Jesus developing this as the end of the Old Covenant age. And so clearly, uh, Paul is tracking with the end of the Old Covenant age. Daniel would be raised at the end to inherit eternal life. The Old Testament dead ones would be raised to immortality at this same end, end of the Old Covenant age. At the second coming and resurrection, uh, the fulfillment. Oh, let's see, Jesus. Uh, this fulfillment would be to Jesus's audience, the you. And in Paul's First Corinthians fifteen, he says, "We, we will not all die." So clearly, it's the same resurrection of Matthew twenty four thirty one with um, the we contemporary we. All the elect, dead and living, would be gathered to inherit eternal life, and the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. More parallels. Christ comes, parousia. Parousia is used. At the sound of a trumpet, at the sound of a trumpet, obviously, the end, telos, and and the telos, the goal would be reached, which is what? Inheriting the kingdom. They both talk about the kingdom. They both talk about the telos, the end. All prophecy would be fulfilled, Jesus says, in this generation, which would be the fulfillment of Isaiah uh, 24, 25, Hosea 13, Daniel 12. And then you have some parallels between Romans and 1 Corinthians 13, or 1 Corinthians 15. Believers are planted, united in Christ, and are being raised into a corporate body, that is the redemption of our body. And then you have in Adam and in Christ, corporate body concepts. Well, First, First Corinthians 15, Paul isn't departing from what he taught in Romans. It's basically the same resurrection. Why it sounds a little bit difficult is because you don't understand what the resurrection of the dead were denying about bodies, and I'll talk about that another time, but we have the same concepts. Believers are being sown and being raised into a spiritual corporate body with what kind of body, singular, do they, plural, come? Same concept, our body uh, redemption of the body. And again, you have in Adam and in Christ theme. Overcoming the same evil trinity, the sin, the death, and the law. 
Paul addresses them again in 1 Corinthians. How many overcomings of the sin, the death, and the law are there? Just one. It would be at the end of the Old Covenant age when Christ's parousia would take place. Deliverance and victory over the sin, the death, and the law would be at Christ at hand and about to second coming in Romans chapter 5. Remember, we looked at... uh, Paul says that Adam was a type of him who was about to come. And what would he come to do? He, well, he'd overcome what he had just been talking about, the sin, the death, and the law. And 1 Corinthians 15, not all of them would die. Christ was going to come, his parousia, and he would overcome the sin, the death, and the law. Conclusion, we have seen the perfect and beautiful harmony concerning the time and nature of fulfillment. And notice my green tie, that's time of fulfillment. The yellow nature of fulfillment, just so you know. Concerning the time and nature of resurrection from Daniel to Jesus to Paul. This resurrection event would take place at the end of the Old Covenant age and was therefore about to be fulfilled in the lifetime of the first century church. The dead and the living would be raised or changed to spiritually inherit eternal life and be placed into the glorified body of Christ to enjoy His glory and His presence forever. And we join them in this wonderful inheritance. So we embrace gospel, sovereign grace, gospel eschatology. One One last nugget of truth. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, the Weist New Testament translates the last enemy of Psalm 110, death, was being destroyed. It's in the present passive indicative. Now that destroys Weiss theology. I mean, how can physical death be in the process of being destroyed for 2,000 years? Christ is an epic failure if that's the case. But if that's spiritual death that was being destroyed, now it makes sense. But thank you, Mr. Weiss, because he was no chump when it came to Greek. And he translated that as a present process. What do we see in Revelation? The city, the new Jerusalem. I don't like the NIV either, but sometimes it helps. Revelation 3, verses 11 and 12. It says that the new Jerusalem, present tense, was coming down. When the new Jerusalem comes down to earth at Christ's soon coming, what is, or what is not in the new Jerusalem? The death. Paul, or John says the curse of the spiritual death that came through Adam is no more. It's for those outside in the darkness that need to come into the New Jerusalem because we need to preach that, right? But in the New Jerusalem, at Christ's second coming, the death of Adam is gone for us. It was being destroyed because the New Jerusalem was coming down. And when it came down, that curse is forever gone for those of us in Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the perfect harmony and beauty uh, between the Old Testament prophets, yourself, and your apostles and prophets. We rejoice in your word, Lord. We love your word. You weren't, they weren't assuming that you were going to come. You gave them your spirit, and through inspiration, they taught that you were coming then in AD 70, at the end of the Old Covenant age, and we rejoice in that, but we rejoice, Lord, in the result of that, that we have fellowship with you. You and the Father are dining within us. Your glory is revealed in us. 
God, we just pray, Lord, for our future as brethren. Lord, open their eyes. Cause them to see what they have right now. And that they wouldn't turn those promises into carnal things, but would realize what you've done for them right now. We pray that you'd open their hearts and minds, even as we're praying, that providentially they came across this. And so we just pray, Lord, this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. And lastly, if you make your pilgrimage to Berean Bible Church, you get a free book, all right? At one of the conferences, I touched on the eschatology of Islam, Zionism, whether it was Talmudic Zionism or Evangelical Zionism, and you know how they're trying to self-fulfill an end-time war, which constantly creates conflict in the Middle East. I kind of show how preterism solves that problem. And I think the New World Order will probably start World War III uh, with Iran and Israel, but we'll see. But anyway, so if you come, you get a free book. So come, visit the body here, you know. Make the pilgrimage. Fellowship with us. Get a free book. And uh, we love you guys. Thanks. Oh, yes. Questions. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Actually, this is from the chat room, so I'm not asking you. But anyway, what is your take on Romans 8.11 where he says, quicken your mortal bodies to plural? I was trying to see if it would be a cover, but I don't know. Did I miss it? Well, no. I mean, um, well... 8.11, no, because I was, I was dealing with uh, verses 18 through 23. But, you know, I would agree with Pastor Curtis when I was reading his stuff. You know, you have individual bodies within the corporate body. And so they were changed. They were being united in his death. But they were being raised into a corporate body. And you have the individual and you have the corporate in Romans chapter 8. He says, he says our body... Um, so the R is the plural, you know, the individuals and with the corporate singular body. You can't have a corporate without individuals. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Any, anything else? Uh, i got a question. Um, so where do you think the dispensationalists come up with this seven-year tribulation? <laughs> I, I really have no idea because it's clearly three and a half I years. Know. I mean, um, maybe just the seventh week of yeah, they, they seem to take the, the, the seven years. They don't see that it's it's cut in half. He, right. he clearly says it in Daniel 9. He says he's going to be cut off after three and a half years. He inaugurates, what, the new covenant. And then after that, there's three and a half years that are remaining. Now, a lot of people struggle with that because they're like, well, there's a gap. And, and if dispensationalists have thousand, a thousand year, you know, thousands and thousands of years gap, we don't want to have any gap at all. But if you understand Daniel 9, that it's, it's, it's dealing with 10 jubilee periods, all right? 49 or 50-year periods. And the Jews and Christians are divided. Is it, is it, a, is it a period of, of two things, or is it a period of three, three redemptive events? But the point is, is that it's divided in jubilees. And according to 11Q Melchizedek, the Jews believe that when Messiah came, he had to come in the 10th jubilee. And when Jesus opens up the scroll of Isaiah 61 and Luke 4, I believe that was a jubilee. I mean, I've, I've done the math. But when you do the math, you have to do it according to the Jewish calendar and not the Gentile calendar. When you do that, Christ arrives in the 10th jubilee, and according to the Dead Sea Scrolls, he had to gather his people to himself, he had to accomplish atonement, and he had to judge the watchers and Satan and the wicked. If he didn't do that, all within that 10th jubilee, 
it was a failure. He wasn't the Messiah. Well, Jesus says all these things are going to take place in this generation, but it's also a 50-year period that he has to do. So even though there's a, a break within the two, three-and-a-half-year periods, as long as it's done within a generation, and as long as it's within that 10th Jubilee period, so it's not, you see what I'm saying? It's not a gap. It's, it's still done within the new Exodus Jubilee. Well, I think that gap also fits the Feast of the Lord. Yes. You have four, four, four months. month gap in the yes. middle there. You've got the beginning feast, you know, the yeah. coming, and then you've got the final feast. It's a know. process. Right. It's not a gap. It's a process. Right. It's a 40 year tribulation. Right. And, and I mean, even, full predators, even full predators don't get that. The, some of them are still trying to get it done at 8033, you know, and it's just like, no, all these things would be filled when the temple's destroyed. That's that's when the 490 years end. Preston made that connection. It seemed like I remember hearing him say something about that little gap was the time between the, yeah. the way that the feasts were done. It yeah. like he was one of the first ones I might have heard. I, th- I think Mr. Curtis was the first to belt up. And no, maybe, I stole that with Don. Did he steal from Don? Well, Don, Don, if you're listening, we want to give you credit. But, you know. um, and I think Don's actually doing a, uh, a book on on the feasts and on 1 Corinthians. Well, that's not the next book, though, because the next book's covered. <laughs> Who knows? He's going to have 50 books. But. Mike, one of, the, one of the listeners writes, I don't, have, I don't use Facebook. How can I contact Mike? Does he have a website or email? So I'm going to tell him fullpreterism.com or you can go to Gab I'm on Gab Um, those are pretty much the two anything else? another question that came in it's not connected with the message but it says do angels have work among believers today? are there guardian angels? oh kind of like the Hebrews saying entertaining angels unaware I wouldn't see why not. I mean, it's definitely possible. They're still and if and if and if they're if they're intervening intervening, they're not UFOs. <laughs> so the History Channel always bugs me when they when they talk about these ancient pyramids and right. and all these things. It's like, man, they're not UFOs, man. They're the Watchers. Anyway, which are UFOs today? Yeah, exactly, exactly. But the Bible is just, you know, too stuffy and old and traditional, so we have to come up with something. Just the comment, I think this goes way back to your first point. Uh, when I was a young baby Christian in Christian Mirror's Christian Mission Alliance in late 70s, early 80s, uh, we had the Aka Indian who murdered uh, Nate Saint, And he was saying he became a believer when he seen... Nate Saint was dying, but he seen his spirit going up. Huh? And uh, there was a movie on that end of the spear. Not, I don't know how long ago. So. Yeah, I, you know, maybe let me address that. I, I didn't have time in the message to do it. I was one of those things I cut out. But you know, when Paul is using this terminology in Second Corinthians five about the two houses, and in First Corinthians fifteen, it kind of sounds like an individual body. Because if you think about it. In a sense, we're growing old or passing away. You know, we talk about well, grandma or grandpa's in her last days. Mm-hmm. She's on her deathbed. She's in her last days. She's passing away. Come and see. Okay. So these same terms are used of the transition from this physical life, this physical body, to a spiritual body to be either be in God's presence or not. So um, I I think that's why, and I think some full preterists. Um, 
are still kind of holding on to that concept in 2 Corinthians. But I don't think 2 Corinthians chapter 3 all the way to chapter 6, I think it's a one unit. And it's talking about, like Glenn preached at uh, one of the conferences, you know, we have a new home. And uh, he went to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and, and hammered that pretty, I would agree with him. But that is, and that's the thing, is when you're, you're preaching and you're teaching, your responsibility is to give the primary meaning of the text. And so when I read 1 Corinthians 15 and I read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe that the primary meaning there is a corporate body. But that wouldn't make any sense if there's not this transition that takes place in our lives from the physical to the spiritual and that transition of the body. So uh, so hopefully that kind of 